episode 59 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a detailed breakdown of Matt Kenseth's comeback and what we can expect, and a look into an alternate universe where we can go back and say, what if some moves were never made? But first, as always, this is episode 59 of Positive Regression. This is the Tiger Tom Pistone edition. Tiger Tom, David. You know, I knew the name. I knew the personality. But admittedly, I don't know much about him as a racer or his influence. Uh, he raced partial schedules for in the 50s and 60s in, in NASCAR. And he did win twice in 1959 in a number 59 car. Yeah, interesting character, Tiger Tom. He was a five-time track champion at Soldier Field. Yes, that Soldier Field in Chicago. And after his fourth title win, he was told by NASCAR if he won another title, he would automatically be promoted out of the division. He did win it, and he was promoted. He quickly made his way down south. And you mentioned it, the uh, the 59 in 1959. Tiger Tom made 22 starts during the 1959 season. That was roughly half uh, the, the full season schedule. He won twice. He averaged a ninth place finish. And with his seven mechanical DNFs omitted, the average improves to 4.9. Wow. He never competed for... A championship, but I mean, as we've discussed in, in these segments before, that really wasn't the norm for this era at all. He, he did manage to influence this era in another way, though. Pistone, by his own admission, proved integral in helping Bill France break up the Professional Drivers Association, which was the union led by Richard Petty. Eight years ago, Pistone told OneDirt.com that he did that as a return favor for all the help France provided him after he moved down south. Bill France owned my car, he said, all the way from the beginning. I was racing for Bill France since day one. I helped him get rid of the PDA. I was a spy. I found out what all those guys were doing, and I would tell Bill what they were doing. So we broke that PDA up. Wild admission for sure. But um, I, you know what? If you're into that, my colleague at The Athletic, Jordan Bianchi, did a really good oral history on the 1969 driver boycott of Talladega that delved into the inner workings of the PDA. I'll give that piece my highest recommendation but uh, as for Tiger Tom, he's still influencing the racing world. He's a regular fixture at Legend Car Tracks. He populates his Twitter feed with all sorts of old photos. And at the very top, his profile banner is of the number 59 car. Uh, and if I think I'm going to brag on myself a little bit, uh, this might be one of the first people from one of these segments that uh, follows me on Twitter. Very so I kind of cool. got a kick out of that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Tiger Tom. I mean, a lot, a lot to talk about there. Certainly an interesting, influential character just to go along with his two wins in the number 59 ride. Tiger Tom, that 1959 season, David, he ran, as you said, about half the races and still finished sixth in points. So he did something <laughs> right in 1959 yeah. in the 59 car. This one's to you. Tiger Tom. 
All right, getting to it. Let's talk about some of the news of the week. Uh, the biggest news being Matt Kenseth is back in the Cup Series. He will drive the 42 for Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, David, I mean, some stuff to unpack here because I don't think Matt Kenseth was the, the first choice. Certainly, you know, we, we had done a whole episode or at least part of an episode talking about who could potentially be in the, in the 42 car. Matt Kenseth, not near the top of that list at all. And, you know, in doing this podcast with you, David, I've been trained to think about metrics and stats and analytics and potential of what could happen by getting a young driver in there. Chip Ganassi went, went a different way. They went stability and, uh, you know, the, the resume of Matt Kenseth. What was your take on all this? We have to consider what the goal for Chip Ganassi Racing was in this transaction, right? Because if we are just going to grade this signing for what it is, then it's going to warrant some criticism. But this was not a multi-year deal right for 2020 and beyond if, if that was the case then nah, you might you might be hearing angry statistician guy right now but that's not what happened chip ganassi racing has had a rough two week stretch you know to to put it mildly and if their sponsors had left uh, some folks there potentially a lot of them would have been without jobs there would not have been a 42 team at all that went to the track and this move for Matt Kenseth, to me, is about surprise and intrigue for positive reasons. The team needed a pat on the back, first and foremost, for its own survival, right? Kenseth has winning credentials. He seems to be well-liked uh, by most. And his coming out of retirement to do this, uh, I mean, it's for the remainder of the season. We're not really sure if that's going to be 32 races. We don't know what that constitutes yet. But him coming out of retirement establishes a new narrative for this team for 2020. We're interested in how this team performs now for much different reasons than we were two weeks ago. And in my piece for The Athletic, I wrote that Ganassi won the news cycle, probably are going to have some statistical limitations, but winning the news cycle, bringing something positive to their team and appeasing some folks who were burned by what happened, that might actually have been the priority. That may have been what was meant all along. And for that, they then... If that is the case, then this is a home run hire um, just because it's something temporary. It's something to keep in our memory just to kind of take our minds off uh, everything else that's happened with this team this year. We talked so much about age on this podcast. I've learned a lot from you. So what can we expect from a 48-year-old Matt Kenseth, former champion, former winner, of course, but a 48-year-old Matt Kenseth who's never driven this package on this type of car? Yeah, well, the last thing you said is very important, right? So there's going to be an initial learning curve that goes with that. Uh, I think if we're going to have some truncated weekend schedules or one-day shows with limited or no practice, this is going to be kind of tough. Uh, I mean, one of Kenseth's strengths, at least anecdotally, 
was providing feedback, um, being able to articulate what was going on with the car to his crew chief to make it faster. Um, as we've learned from, you know, last year's rookies from younger drivers, that's the biggest hurdle. He was clearing that hurdle very well. And that kind of intelligence isn't going to go away. But what, what is going away is the, just the ability to produce, the ability to create his own track position. Uh, two years ago when he was running a half season for Roush Fenway Racing, he turned in uh, a top 20 peer, but it was in line with drivers like an Austin Dillon. And right now, uh, the, the projection is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of what Paul Menard and Ty Dillon produced last year. And while that's probably not something his fans specifically want to hear, I don't think really it's really in question, right? Because we talked about this sort of thing with the extension that Kevin Harvick signed with Stuart Haas earlier this year. But the, the verbiage we used was that these ages are typically when drivers decline, meaning that we haven't seen all of Kevin Harvick's decline yet, but this is different. Matt Kenseth declined in productivity. Th- that happened. That That is inarguable. How he gets track position, everything, that's all a big question. So it's already happened. So in an attempt to make the best out of this, one must assume that the driver is going to be neutral to the cause of the 42 team. So so focus deep on the game plan itself. That might be pit strategy. If he's uh, approved to compete for a championship spot, actually just I'm, I'm seeing the tweet now, he is, okay. So he's approved to compete for a championship spot, then it certainly becomes an instance where uh, Chad Johnston, his crew chief, is just going to have to go for the lowest hanging points wherever they are. Lots of gambles because why not? There's not much to lose. And anything Kenseth does well, and it's possible he can still bring something to the table. I, I wrote that he's slightly more than a live pulse. He's I'm not I'm not putting him out to pasture yet. But but anything he does well should be viewed as a bonus. And I think for a temporary situation, that is fine. If the number 42 team slips into this routine of letting the driver carry them. And that's sort of what happened at times over the last two or three years. But if they do that now, then they are playing with fire. The team has to be proactive about procuring track position until Kenseth proves the theory otherwise. Um, it, it, it will be it will be a tough slug for the 42 team this season. But given what happened and given how there's a driver that seems to be satisfying the sponsors and the sponsors are returning, there might not be a team that is just simply happier to be at the racetrack than the folks working around the 42 team. As we expect, this is temporary for 2020, the rest of the season. Looking beyond that over at Chip Ganassi Racing, Chip was quick to pick out that, uh, point out that he still has a plan for Ross. Again, a lot of us assumed Ross may be in the 42 car this year, but he has some other plans, obviously some other responsibilities, uh, to race at, for this year anyway. And, but for 2020 and beyond, or beyond 2020, David, uh, Ross still seems like the plan. What do you think of that? I would agree with that. Uh, I think, Contractual hurdles 
are tricky. And as we know, he's contracted to compete in the Xfinity series for colleague racing and, uh, compete for a championship is, I mean, was the ultimate goal. We don't know how the schedules for cup and Xfinity align. We're not sure if that would allow, uh, him to do both. I would say, if you're going to go in the Cup Series and a ride like this, then this needs to be your central focus. So Chip Ganassi telling the Associated Press, I believe, that they had a plan for Ross, uh, that is pretty good. I know I've written about candidates. I know that we have discussed them here on the pod. But in understanding what was going on at Chip Ganassi Racing these two weeks, you have to be considerate of the fact that it is difficult to just build a five-year plan on the fly. Um, I would think a large part of their long-term plan maybe involved Kyle Larson, and that went out the window. So what we saw was the result of a scramble. It's reported that they reached out to Carl Edwards, and Carl Edwards turned them down. So we we did say that they owed it to themselves to turn over every rock these were some pretty unique rocks. These weren't on anyone's radar and they did turn them over. So it's clear that they were looking for something. I think they got what they were looking for, even though statistically it's not the best option on the table, but for what they are attempting to do and what their 2020 season is now about, it's probably the move that best suits their most pressing need. All right. Well said. Big things to come for the 42 car. All right. Let's move on, David. Let's, uh, let's play a game. All right. We'll call it the what if game, the okay. butterfly effect. Uh, we talked last week in last week's episode about some of the biggest driver upgrades uh, in the last 20 years in NASCAR, going from one driver to another and it paying off big time. Well, today we're going to look back at some driver uh, moves and what if they didn't happen? What, what, what have the dominoes that would fall? How history may have played out? Obviously it's all speculation, but I'd like to think it's somewhat educated speculation on our part. And it's just a fun thing to do because there are some interesting scenarios we are going to talk about, David. I picked out three of them and, uh, we'll, we'll just get into it. Um, last week we talked a lot about Brad Kozlowski and the upgrade Penske got when they, when they picked Brad up. Uh, that move was made because he was not going to be a Hendrick driver. And if you remember uh, back to that point in time, uh, it seemed like the plan was for Brad Kozlowski to make, you know, he had done some races in that 25 car with GoDaddy for Hendrick Motorsports back when it was a fifth car, I believe. And it seemed like the plan was for him to be in the five car that Mark Martin would be exiting. Well, Mark Martin went out and won five races and didn't leave the five car. And Brad Kozlowski then left Hendrick Motorsports. So David. What would have happened? What would the effect have been if Hendrick Motorsports ate the remainder of Mark Martin's contract and promoted Brad Keselowski into the five and for the foreseeable future, he was a Hendrick Motorsports driver? Yeah. So if we, okay. So if we think back to 2008, uh, Keselowski was a junior motorsports driver and he made two cup starts at the very end of the season for Hendrick Motorsports proper. So that tells us that he was uh, very much on their radar and they probably had a plan for him, but I don't know, Alan, because they, they replaced Casey Mears with Mark Martin, which 
upgrade. In hindsight, right? Like, but in hindsight, age 50, like, eh, okay. I mean, that, that's a, that's a, we just talked about Matt Kenseth. That's a dicey move. Um, the, now the difference between Matt Kenseth now and Mark Martin, then Matt Kenseth's quote yesterday saying that two weeks ago, racing wasn't on my radar. Um, Mark Martin always wanted to race that, that never, like that never went away. He was looking for, for a race. Um, but man, the, the first year was, I mean, had to be totally worth it. I doubt that Rick Hendrick has regrets, about signing a driver who finished second in points. And I mean, what was that? The marquee year of Mark Martin's final 10 in the cup series. I mean, look, you, you made a big bet and it paid out brilliantly, but it was a steep downhill beyond that. And that's the moment where you kind of scratch your head. You say, okay, there was room to promote this young driver in Keselowski that you thought a lot of. You thought so much of him that you allowed him to race a cup car for you and then part-time in 2009, and he won a race in 2009. Uh, there was that. Um, and, and, and you also were looking elsewhere for Casey Kane, who you signed two years before he yep. was actually available and they couldn't get Mark Martin out of the ride. Removing Mark Martin from a ride is like trying to kick a fire hydrant to like <laughs> move it out of your way. It's just not, it's not going to go well for you. So, so Casey Kane was in, you know, Red Bull purgatory for a year. He won a race for them. Uh, and, and then had to go over, uh, to Hendrick after Mark Martin's, uh, contract, uh, ended. But if Brad Keselowski was just given this ride, it would have eventually become an upgrade. He would have enjoyed all the spoils at his disposal. And here's where I think it would have mattered most. He would have been that voice. In transition, think of, uh, think of the last few years, not this year, but kind of leading into this year, that transition, that voice that was missed after Jeff Gordon retired. I have been told after the fact by folks who worked at Hendrick that the day Jeff Gordon retired was a significant blow to that organization because his card knowledge, his feedback ability, it was just gone. They didn't have access to that anymore and no knock on Jimmy Johnson, but look, it was his decision. He, he wanted to live in Aspen for half the year. That was the deal that he made with Rick, but that, that meant he wasn't around. So Hendrick was going through a difficult period as an organization and they didn't have this, this one commanding voice, this, this leader among the driver roster. And it strikes me now that may, that, that, that may as well have been Brad during that time. I think that is where they may have missed him the most. Um, what we know of Brad Keselowski, he came into team Penske and I'm hesitant to say whipped it into shape, but there certainly is a lot of hiring after he walked through the door. They created the Xfinity series team around him. Keselowski has very much set up shop in the Mooresville area where Team Penske's based, he's hands-on. And you get the sense that if he had been at Hendrick from, you know, uh, invariably a day one, his instinct to do this would have remained. Um, Alan, what, I mean, what well, are, that's you, what where are I your wonder, That's where we differ. I mean, just hearing what you said okay. in terms of 
because I wonder if it's still the same Brad Keselowski if he is not the alpha over there. Because think think of the team he would have been with if he goes over there in what 2010. You have Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and a young Brad Keselowski. Um, it's hard to be the top guy over there, whether it be in voice and or performance. And I think that's something he benefited with in being able to go over to Penske and, you know, make those quotes and say, we got to hire 200 more people or whatever it was. And we got to do this, that, and the other thing and go out there and be the number one guy on that team, uh, which he was quickly. I mean, he ended up being the team Penske's winningest driver. So does he get those opportunities just in terms of voice or leadership development or however you want to characterize it? Does he get that on a team of Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, and Dale Earnhardt Jr.? I don't think so. But did he, would he have needed to do that though? Because, because Hendrick was in a position, all he had to do was bring a helmet and he had a winning race car. With Penske, there was, first of all, Kurt Busch was already there. So, I mean, I, I mean, Brad, was he the alpha on day well, one? I mean, not, not, not day one, certainly not, like, but to, to develop into it. I mean, yeah. we, we still have Jimmy Johnson there. Jeff Gordon along was there for a long time and so was Dale Earnhardt. Uh, Brad Keselowski was no number one over at HMS for, for a while. It wouldn't have been anyway. Now, I don't know. Maybe it would. I mean, that's why we're debating, right? But, uh, I, I don't see it. I, I just don't see, I, I see he got the voice that, uh, that he deserved over at Penske in terms of being the vocal leader and, and that person you go to. And it, it just seems like a full locker room over there where you have all those other, all, all those other big names at HMS. If he were to be paired with those three, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and I actually see now in you saying that, I see your point. If he was with Hendrick and understood what was going on there, brought back that intel to Penske and then they built up around them. If, if he was at Hendrick all along and if they still took some sort of a, a swan dive, because again, there was so much cost uh, happening at Hendrick. If they took that dive, would he have even recognized the warning signs if he didn't previously, I don't know, have have an experience where he saw what a, a quote unquote bad team looked like, right? He, I think, did he finish outside the top 25 in points his rookie year for Penske? Mm-hmm. But so he, he, he saw struggle to some respect. And at Hendrick, he probably wouldn't have experienced struggle until later on, if at all. Uh, but I, I do have one thing else to consider. What if he did stay at Hendrick? What if Penske hadn't built around Keselowski? Where yeah, is the where? Penske organization? Because what is Penske it, without its winningest driver? I mean, yeah, that, that's crazy to think about as well. I mean, who who is there? I mean, Casey Kane get knocked over there, or what happens? Because Casey Kane's not at Hendrick. But but in hindsight, Rick Hendrick had an opportunity to knock off a marquee competitor. I mean, that's pretty big. Like if they, if they sign the guy who is ultimately the linchpin of, of modern day Penske, does it stunt Penske's growth and, and, and all the gains that it made pre Logano? So even if they sign Joey Logano, maybe he becomes the guy that they have to build something around and he doesn't have that immediate success. Those, that good 2014 season, that brilliant 2015 season. That doesn't happen. Could they even keep Joey Logano if he broke out as expected for his age? If he's, you know, popping hot on the radar, a better team would snatch him up maybe, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, all these scenarios, but going back to the actual decision, contract, money, what have you, if, if everything's equal, David, go back to 2010, 2009, how tough of a decision is it to take a five win Mark Martin or uh, a Brad Keselowski with, with budding potential? Is it that simple if you're Rick Hendrick? I mean, uh, I know you got no heart, David, so I know you just make it with your brain. Maybe it is that simple. But <laughs> maybe it is that simple, but it just seems like, you know, the common sense of it all is like, I, I can't what, I can't get Mark Martin out of the car. He just won five races, finished second in points. I can't bring Brad Keselowski in. Maybe we're overthinking it. Uh, no, no, because it's, it's a tough call. Like how do you, how do you boot a guy that just won five races for you? Um, I, I'm, I'd, I'm really curious to know how much Mark Martin was getting paid yeah. because they didn't want to buy him out of that deal, but also they, they had the money to do that. I mean, when Dale Jr. was there, some money was coming in. So there was something clearly that they liked about Mark Martin. They are valuing him in other ways that we can't, at least from a, a quantitative point of view, right? Maybe, maybe it was the leadership. He was the, you know, the proverbial men, uh, leader of men. Uh, I don't know, but there clearly was a reason that they didn't want to buy him out or could not buy him out because again, Casey Kane had to sit on the sideline. So, it, it, it almost wasn't even that they, that they, uh, bypassed Keselowski for Mark Martin. They also bypassed him for Casey Kane. So it was, there, there were two situations there where it could have been an opening if Rick Hendrick wanted to make it happen, but it didn't. And, uh, and man, what a, what a turnaround because it, I mean, there were lasting ramifications for two different organizations there. I guess we'll never know. Let's move on to the next one. Way back when, Joe Gibbs Racing retains a young Joey Logano instead of signing Matt Kenseth. Uh, this one is tough, David. I mean, again, th- these are tough decisions, and it, that's why it's fun to go back and look at what what if it didn't happen. As if, if you don't recall, remember Joey Logano started his career, had some uh, growing pains and some you know some good years though as a the driver of the number twenty for Joe Gibbs Racing. But as he once told me, he was then offered a full-time nationwide ride instead of his cup ride, and that's when he got out and went to Team Penske. But let's remember, Joe Gibbs chose a 41-year-old Matt Kenseth over a 23-year-old Joey Logano. Logano was struggling. Kenseth was on a great upswing, uh, kind of in his peak performance years, as we always talk about on this podcast. Uh, felt like he was making chicken salad over at uh, <laughs> over at Roush uh, during this time. And he comes in and he wins seven races in that first year. So you look back at that and say, that was a great decision to bring Matt Kenseth in. Uh, but we know what Joey Logano would go on to do and what he will continue to do and what he's doing this year. So, David, what do you think of when you think of what if Joe Gibbs had kept Joey Logano? Hmm. Well, okay, so the the fourth team, the 19 team, had not been launched yet. So he stays, and it is a team of Kyle Busch, Denny Hamlin, and Joey Logano. And that is... That is strong. That is, that is really strong. Um, yeah, Joey wasn't, he wasn't, I mean, God, to say that he just, he had growing pains, like what else is expected from a kid, from someone that's 19 to 22 years old? Those are college years, right? Like if, if 
our college years, Alan, if they were broadcast to the American public for 36 weekends a year, it probably wouldn't have been very pretty, right? So, maybe. And to be fair, 99% of us that aren't David Smith are looking at stats, right? Are looking at some struggle. They're not looking at the in-depth stuff yeah. that you look at that reveals a whole lot more of just how damn good Joey Logano was for a 19, 20-year-old which is why we talk about these decisions because these things need to be or deserve to be looked at because when you examine them further, it, it makes this argument a, a lot more clear as to why you'd want Joey Logano around because he was outperforming what he should have been doing at 20 years old, and this was probably going to continue. That's what should have been realized in hindsight. Yeah, so if you, like you recognize that, right, and you know that – Based on history that we've seen of young drivers, how they first flourish at the Cup Series level, it comes around ages 24 and 25. The first time Joey Logano led the series in production rating, he was, uh, he was 24. And in his age 25 season, that was the 2015 season, he might have been the favorite for the championship. I think he was uh, until he was taken out by Martinsville uh, at Martinsville by the very driver who replaced him. Um, I mean, that that theoretically could have gone another way. He could have been able to produce at a high clip for a Joe Gibbs racing team who, you know, at that time, I think when when he was at JGR, the, Toyota was there and that they, they were a Toyota program, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't this synergy driven powerhouse combination that we now, um, know it is. So if he's there with JGR sort of getting its footing and really taking off as the sports new powerhouse, he would have been closer to unstoppable at a younger age than than he is right now. He probably he probably would have been the driver we see right now, maybe two or three years earlier. Um, now there are a couple of things that that may not make this realistic. One I think is is real. The other thing I think is false. The the thing that I think is real is the cost associated with keeping an all-star roster like this together. That is massive. And sponsors that pay these kind of driver salaries, driver salaries are not just, you know, a drop in the bucket anymore. I mean, they're, they're pretty extensive. You're building your sponsorship asks around these driver salaries. So one of them, Bush, Hamlin, or Logano might not have even lasted to this point, to the year 2020. Um, they, they may would have had to have, have gone to a younger driver, not had a fourth team at all. I don't know, but they would have had to have done something to provide some sort of financial relief because if all three of them have the same trajectory that they've been on these last few years, their worth goes up. They can command more on the open market. And I think it's foolish to not think one of them would have tested that out to see if they could have gotten paid more. So maybe, maybe not, they're not all making bank, you know, at that point. Maybe that's, that's how that's affected. Uh, and the other thing, I'm sure some of our listeners are probably, uh, yelling at us. I, I wrote about this in the do over article for the athletic last week and there were commenters who spoke about the personality clashes that Logano has had 
with other drivers mm-hmm. and specifically pointed at Kyle Busch and Denny Hamlin. And we can even think Martin Truex uh, at Martinsville two years ago. And yes, those are visible because you not only see what occurs on the racetrack, but, but as a fan, you're getting real time reactions to everything. And to that, I, I say this, uh, one of the best books I have ever read was The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. And for those who don't know it, it is about fighter pilots who comprised the initial crop of NASA astronauts. And that book focused a lot on ego and mainly the necessity of ego given the danger of that profession. It takes a sizable ego to overcome uh, nerves in a death-defying job. And to a lesser degree, I think this is true with race car drivers. But the yin to the yang when discussing big egos, those those massive highs that big egos have, they give way to serious lows. And even in the book, when Alan Shepard was passed over for John Glenn in Who Would Orbit the Earth First, Alan Shepard did not take that very well at all. His, his ego got the best of him. It was a low point. And with race car drivers, when things go horrendously bad, they react poorly. And we see that because that is the exact opposite of the reaction they give when things go exceedingly well. So I say all that to say this, aside from maybe Kenseth dumping Logano at Martinsville and sort of derailing this championship run, I don't know that there is really any squabble I've seen in NASCAR in the last 10 years that cannot at least be neutralized over a beer or two, right? Because Earlier this year in Fontana, Martin Truex said that both Denny Hamlin and Eric Jones could kiss his ass. Does this mean that those three drivers cannot coexist driving for different teams? No, no. These these drivers don't have to like each other. They're competitors. They're not supposed to like each other. They're just supposed to coexist. And Joe Gibbs had experience with egos and, and and brash drivers. Come on, Tony Stewart, Kyle Busch, Joey Logano is a choir boy compared to them, and more importantly, a good driver. And and who wouldn't want a good driver if you are fielding a race team that is competing for wins? So fans, please don't fall for the theatrics if everyone who ever tangled on a racetrack truly despised one another to the point of absurdity, there would be riots every night in the motor coach lot. And while that would be entertaining, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure Logano would have done fine at JGR. And the, the, the point where it all would have come to a head, I think would have just been individual drivers looking for better deals or trying to make sense of their lot in the sport. I don't think there would have been a personality clash that would have broken them apart because ultimately, yeah, Joe Gibbs really enjoyed those uh, initial Matt Kenseth years and what is not to enjoy seven wins in a second place run. that is very hard to come by friends. That is, that is difficult, uh, but, but that is a good year. 
Um, that said, man, there are, there are people in there that are kind of shaking their head saying, yeah, Logano would be pretty good right about now. Yeah, and, I'm with you. And I mean, they I, have to be considering that. Yeah, I think, look, unlike H, you know, Kozlowski to HMS, I think Logano staying at Gibbs, you know, I don't think he needs to be the alpha dog, right? He wouldn't have had to compete personality wise or, or whatever wise with Kyle Bush nor Denny Hamlin. I, I think Logano would have been, would have had the same trajectory and maybe been even a little better in terms of stat padding because of just how good Toyota and JGR has been over what the past decade or at least the last five to six years. Um, I, you know, I, I think all of it's still there. I think all of Logano's success is still there if he stayed or if they'd stuck with him just a, a little longer, if he was able to uh, grow out of those quote unquote growing pains that he was uh, at least, you know, branded with in those first few years. If he was able to do that, I think all the talent is still there and I certainly had the speed and equipment. So yeah, uh, just makes you wonder. Now we, we've eliminated Kislowski and Logano from Team Penske in this what if scenario. What, what, what would Team Penske be? Would David Stremme still be there? Uh, AJ Allmendinger? Would Kansas still have, would have gone there? You know, in all our weird scenarios, it's, uh, it would have been some lean years for Team Penske. Yeah, but you know what? Roger Penske's the captain for a reason. Right? Amen. Like he's, he's, he's the one that goes and buys Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, <laughs> well, I, I feel like, I feel like something would have been figured out if it wasn't Keselowski, but I think the, the value in, in Brad and then later Joey was that they got to a point that they, they probably would have gotten to, but a lot quicker. And, 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 and you know what? Like we, we talk about Brad Keselowski's malleability and, and just kind of rolling with the punches, but it hasn't all been rosy. Uh, and, and for, for Joey too, the, the year before he won the championship in 2018, yep. he missed the playoffs yep. in 2017. And that's where you think, well, Joe Gibbs Racing had years that they considered down relative to themselves, but they didn't have horrible years. I mean, they're like 20, 2017 was not good for, for the Penske car. That was the, the year of the, uh, the unencumbered race victory, right? Like after <laughs> encumbered. Okay. Oh gosh. Encumbered race victory. Um, where once they're um, now memories just playing games with Richmond. me, but the rear end, rear end housing at Richmond, right? After that trick went away, they had no tricks. So it hasn't been totally easy, but considering where Penske is now, it is in large part to those two gentlemen behind the wheel. Uh, Penske clearly benefited and their competition, uh, is, has some second guessing to do. All right. Last one up. Carl Edwards. Let's pretend. What if, what if David Carl Edwards doesn't retire and continues driving the Joe Gibbs racing number 19 car? Uh, look, remember Carl Edwards walked off after having what, you know, likely the best car in that homestead race and just a few laps away from a championship. Uh, and a championship that instead went to uh, Jimmy Johnson after a late clash with Joey Logano. And that's the last time we saw Carl Edwards. Very interesting stuff. Uh, David, if you remember, we lost Carl Edwards before his prime, before his age 39 season. He walked away at age 36. 
And uh, as you've written before and told us, you know, may- maybe he's had some erratic uh, production or his, some of his abilities were and, and stats were a bit erratic. But I-, I think we get the best of Carl Edwards, as age would tell us. And I think it works itself out. And we're talking cup champion Carl Edwards if he had stayed around. What do you think? I think he might be right. Uh, so last year would have been his age 39 season. And if you remember that final year, his crew chief was Dave Rogers. That was the first year that they were paired together. Uh, that it, it felt like the first year that he was at JGR, there was some fine tuning to do. Carl Edwards. In traffic is not where you want Carl Edwards. Carl Edwards out front and in clean air is, is where you want him. And he has had uh, an erratic past of how he has been able to reliably get track position. But Dave Rogers, crew chief, was a reliable pit strategist and frequently able to get his drivers track position. So that he was competing for a championship that season Kind of a, I mean, kind of a surprise considering the year itself, but, but noting that Dave Rogers was this perfect supplement to what Carl Edwards already offered. That was a pretty good match. And I know Rogers stepped down for personal reasons. That was when Suarez was in the car. I don't know that that happens, but what, what it tells me is Joe Gibbs Racing had kind of figured out what Carl needed. And could have built something more in his guys. Um, I think that would have been good. And what about the driver that did ultimately replace him, Daniel Suarez? Yep. He, uh, he was believed to be the heir apparent to Eric Jones in that second furniture row racing car, the 77. Now, We'll go ahead and assume that Eric Jones goes over to Gibbs, replaces Matt Kenseth, and that all stays the same. If Suarez moves in at Furniture Row, Furniture Row Racing is still in business, buddy, and potentially <laughs> what a, a second powerhouse Toyota organization. Martin Truex would still be there. I mean, for, by all accounts, I, I think he'd, he'd, he'd still, he would still be there. But, uh, and perhaps Cole Pern too, who preferred living in Denver rather than Charlotte, but, um, this is a heck of a what if because Furniture Row was doing a lot to progress the sport, spending a lot of money. Let's, let's, uh, uh, not mince words there, but they were paying engineers better than they were paying pit crew members. That is not usual. They were buying and optimizing turnkey cars instead of building their own, right? They're getting their cars from JGR. That is some uh, cost reduction off the top. That is time reduction so they could focus on other things, getting the, the car better, uh, focusing on their SIM data. Uh, the team owner, Barney Visser, created this well-functioning mechanism that sort of thumbed its nose to the NASCAR norms. Visser did not join the RTA. He didn't feel compelled to. And that always intrigued me. They were thriving in an environment that was viewed by other teams as disadvantageous. And he closed Furniture Row's doors on his own volition as opposed to whittling it down to a shell of itself like some other teams we have seen. 
but perhaps the funding behind Suarez and the additional Toyota support could have prevented that. So when we talk about like the butterfly effect, Carl Edwards retiring and the scramble that, okay, now we've got to yank Suarez out of the Xfinity series into the cup series. There goes his plans. Uh, we furniture row racing closes. Martin Truex comes over to Gibbs. We're talking about a serious butterfly effect. Major ramifications occurred. And I might be inclined to say, I think I would prefer to see the alternate universe where Carl Edwards is still racing and furniture row racing is still open because that's just more talent and more competitors. And I kind of like that in my NASCAR. Uh, but man, I don't know. That is, um, that is uh, definitely a fun what if. Yeah. You threw the furniture row aspect in there. I hadn't thought about that because I had the, I, I just used the Carl Edwards equation and assumed everything else remained the same. And what I mean by that is if Carl's in the 19, that means no Suarez in 19. And then you come up with furniture row closing and suddenly Martin Truex Jr. is available. So what happens? Does Joe Gibbs Racing have to get rid of Eric Jones to keep Martin Truex Jr.? Because you want to keep Martin and Cole Pern around. So much like that happened to Suarez, I think potentially that could have happened to Eric Jones, right? Uh, Someone would have been the odd man out if you have to bring Martin Truex on to Joe Gibbs Racing. Uh, In reality, it was Suarez. If, if, If Eric Jones had been the only option, maybe it would have been him. Uh, so that, that's just something odd to think about because you could have had a lineup with, uh, what, Hamlin, Bush, uh, Martin Truex, and Carl Edwards, right? Um, or, you know, in another world, if Joey Logano stays there, it's Hamlin, Bush, Joey Logano, and Carl Edwards still. I mean, it's crazy to think about. Ooh, that's a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, That sounds expensive, Alan. Um, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, the fate of, the fate of Furniture Row is something that bugs me. Not that it, not that I was a fan and rooting for Furniture Row, but I really like seeing good race teams and I like seeing good race teams be very smart and do things a little differently than, than others. I prefer teams to have an identity and certainly that team had an identity and I mean, if you're, if you're sitting here connecting the dots, them closing, I'm sure that, I mean, Barney Visser had, uh, a heart attack, uh, during Furniture Rose last year. And I'm sure that that, that played a, a part in this, but I, I, I feel like going all the way back to this surprise retirement and it happened on a, you know, weekday morning in January, uh, that Carl Edwards said, I'm, I'm not coming back. I mean, that feels like where the snowball started rolling. And a couple of years later, it'd just be an avalanche and we would lose a recent championship winning team that I'm still scratching my head about. Absolutely. And uh, one of the, one of the stranger stories we'll ever see in, uh, at least in maybe our lifetimes of watching racing. And uh, a good what if, always fun to discuss. Good show, David. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter what your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That kind of stuff helps in spreading the word. We do notice and it is greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. Send us some of your what-if situations. David, you're always working hard. What do you got? This week on The Athletic, I'm writing about 
some prospects of years past from the last 20 years who did not make it to the NASCAR Cup Series, but perhaps should have. Uh, all the positive signs were there for a few drivers like Bobby Santos, uh, who you competed against, Alan, and uh, the late Brian Clausen. Uh, and for whatever reason, Cup Series careers did not happen for them. I analyzed why they should have been considered. So uh, it's a fun read uh, if you're if you're uh, into uh, the prospect uh, chatter and hypotheticals. Hopefully, you stuck around long enough to listen to this entire episode. Uh, so please check that out. Good stuff. And don't forget, Race Up still on Monday through Thursday, 6 p.m. on FS1. We've uh, had some really great shows in terms of, uh, you know, without without product on the track, uh, but we've uh, tried to keep it as normal as possible for everybody and had some really entertaining stuff. And it appears we are getting closer and closer to on-track action again. So uh, just wait for some big announcements for that. It should be pretty good, and I'm looking forward to it, as long as it's done in the safest manner possible and we all can enjoy what's going on on our televisions. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Episode 59 of Positive Regression. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.